Hello from Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News. This is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And this here is one of those podcasts where there is so much that we need to get to uh, that you're going to want to maybe uh, give yourself a rest here for a second, go get a beverage uh, of your choice because we've got a lot to get to. We'll we'll, we'll wait. You block off we'll... the next hour and a half. No, I'm just no, kidding. No, no. It won't be that bad. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll try to keep it uh, within reason. But this was a very busy week. There's a lot of interesting stuff that went down this week, uh, starting with. The, uh, the budget proposal. Uh, State Superintendent Cherry Ibarra unveiled her budget proposal for 2019-2020. Of course, this is all hinges on uh, the outcome of the election and who is actually the state superintendent presenting a budget to the 2019 legislature. But we got a glimpse of what uh, Superintendent Ibarra would like to do if she's reelected. Yeah, we sure did, Kevin. And uh, let's just get right to the highlights. The superintendent is asking for a budget increase for public schools of 6.8% above the current spending levels. That's about $122 million. And the biggest thing that the superintendent wants to pay for uh, is raises for teachers, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. About $80 million of that $122 million, I think, goes into uh, some proposals to raise teacher salaries. Year five of the career ladder. Uh, and then some. She wants to put more money into uh, the teacher salary pool on top of what uh, the fifth year of the career ladder would fund. And so, that's where the superintendent and, and, got in and, trouble. And that's where it gets uh, interesting politically. And, uh, and, and yes, there was a little bit of a walk back. Um, let's talk about the walk back first, because I think this is pretty significant. Uh, so on Tuesday... Uh, Ibarra's office released the budget proposal, uh, put out a press release, and one of the things that came out of that proposal, one of really one of the bigger uh, line items that Ibarra uh, proposed was $28.7 million on top of the extra money for year five of the career ladder. And what what they promised on Tuesday was that that $28.7 million would be enough to fund a minimum teacher salary of $40,000 and top teacher salaries of $58,000. These are pretty significant increases from what year five of the career ladder would fund. And this, the, the context is important right here, right now, because this was not something buried on page 711, table 14. This was the central message of this the superintendent's the budget request. And this was the, the key talking point from the budget proposal as we head into an election is if reelected, uh, Superintendent Ibarra would, would really make teacher salaries the focal point of her of her budget, uh, focal point of her vision for a second term. So that's what we saw on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, fairly abruptly, uh, Superintendent's office, uh, State Department of Education, issued a second news release where they had to walk back that $28.7 million uh, proposal and say that it's not going to fund a $40,000 minimum salary or a $58,000 maximum salary. The minimum and the maximum fall quite a bit lower than that because to get to those $40,000 and $58,000 figures, you would have to spend not $28.7 million. As Betsy Russell from the Idaho Press uh, reported first, you would have to spend $128 million. So we're talking about a $100 million discrepancy between what uh, Sherry Ibarra and State Department of Education were talking about on Tuesday and what they said could really be expected 
when they did the follow-up news release on Wednesday. So it's a big discrepancy. Not a smidge and a smooge, to use the parlance of our superintendent. Not not quite hardly. I mean, it is a really, uh, it's a... It's a large error. I mean, we've called it a hundred million dollar error in in you know, in the blog that I did about it. I mean, that's you no know, really a, no other way to look at it. And, and some interesting language and some interesting uh, framing in that news release on Wednesday. Uh, Superintendent Barra basically said that this was an error that was made by Tim Hill, who is uh, State Department of Education's budget uh, budget guru, school finance guru. Uh, it was flagged by Paul Headley, who uh, is the school budget guru for the Legislative Services Office, the the, the budget wing uh, that works with uh, with legislators. Hence the the walk back and the revised uh, expectations on this budget. But this unusual. was it was fairly unusual. This was extremely unorthodox. The follow up press release took great pains to throw Tim Hill under the bus and to blame Tim Hill rather than to explain what the what the error was. Well, you know, we're not talking about $58,000 and $40,000 anymore. We're talking about quite a bit less money. Yeah. But it was I, I think the superintendent revealed a lot about her leadership style here. Um, blaming an employee. And let's be clear, the superintendent has taken credit at any chance she could for minimal things, graduation rates moving up a smidge and a smooch, two students statewide, she's more than happy to take credit with that. But when something doesn't go bad, whether it's 50% right. of kindergartners not being able to read at grade level when they show up for school, oh, the superintendent blames the test. If there's a $100 million error in her budget request, it's not the superintendent's fault. It's one of her budget lieutenants. And let's be clear, Tim Hill is not a partisan employee. He's worked for several different superintendents of public instruction. He knows school finance as well as anybody in the state. There would be no budget request without Tim Hill. He's worked for several superintendents. Um, He's, by reputation, he's extremely competent at his job. He's someone that both of us have known for years and years and years. And and I mean, this is someone, and I joke about this, but there's a nugget of truth in here that Tim Hill can't retire before the new funding formula is in place because no one knows what's in the new funding formula. He is that much of an expert on school finance. And Tim, just sort of behind the scenes, over the years has helped me out countless times. You know, math is not my strong suit. I'm not great on percentage change and statistics. Tim has spent hours with me and with other educators, with journalists, with the public, explaining how our complicated school funding formula works in a very patient, professional tone. Um, And it just doesn't line up, uh, the level of criticism that he received this week versus his performance uh, year in and year out. It it, it was shocking. It does not make sense. And, you know, in the process, I mean, as I read that news release also, it, it really didn't fully explain the magnitude of, no, of, the, it didn't. Of, the, of the dollar figure we were talking about. It, it came down to, you know, Betsy Russell, you know, calling and saying, okay, how much of a gap was there? And it was something that uh, we were talking about ourselves, uh, you know, Betsy, as often is the case, uh, you know, was was right on top of it. It was it was a question that I had when I saw that news release too. It's like, okay, how, how much would it have really cost to do what was promised on Tuesday? So, uh, 
So, but we're not talking have, about forty thousand yes. and fifty-eight thousand. We're talking like thirty-seven thousand and thirty-seven two. I believe is now what we're talking about. We we have all of those figures, and then a high range of fifty-two thousand. Yeah. So she was off by a considerable amount, and that's a tough pill for. You know, teachers just thought they got this great news on Tuesday. If you vote for Superintendent Ibarra, four more years, significant raises on the horizon. 24 hours later, you know, put the brakes on here, yeah. folks. Mm -hmm. Right. So you, you have that all going on. Uh, we also did get some reaction on this budget proposal from Cindy Wilson, uh, Democratic challenger to Sherry Ibarra. She is uh, saying that this is not a bold proposal. It's, it's not. Uh, it's really more or less just a continuation of the five-year plan uh, as laid out in 2015 with the career ladder. So she gives the, the budget some very lukewarm reviews and uh, a lot of what she talked about uh, was about uh, the school safety aspect of this budget. Um, you know, we, we can go into some detail about that and you can go onto our website and, and read more about what Ibarra is proposing to spend on school security and get uh, Cindy Wilson's reaction. Uh, I was able to sit in on an interview with our, uh, our partners at KIVI, uh, Michelle Edmonds at KIVI. Uh, we sat down with uh, Cindy Wilson to talk about the budget, to talk about other issues. You can see that interview in full uh, on our website, on my blog site. Uh, we've got the full video. So, so full reaction there. Uh, we also have the blog piece explaining the $100 million error and, and go all the way back to Tuesday. It feels like a month ago, but go all the way back to Tuesday and look at the original budget request. We've got full coverage for you. Good stuff. You stayed busy, Kevin. Head on over to the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. Get all caught up on the budget, on the original budget proposal, the air, Cindy Wilson's reaction. It's all there. Uh, so great stuff, Kevin. Thank you. So you, you, you crammed in your last summer vacation, but flew back on Tuesday, and I'm sure made made a point of flying back on Tuesday because you didn't want to miss Wednesday's uh, school funding formula committee meeting. You, you, you jumped right back into, the, into work, uh, Clark, listening to the funding formula committee, and yeah, there was a breakthrough of sorts, wasn't there? Yeah, after almost three years of testimony and hearings, and, and we finally saw a draft of a proposed new public school funding formula unveiled Wednesday at the state capitol. And this is a big deal. And, and why is it so important? This new funding formula, any funding formula we have, is going to drive about $1.8 billion, billion with a B, every year from the state to public school districts and charters. Public education is the state's largest general fund expense every year, and it's the largest expense to Idaho taxpayers. So this is a big deal. The main thing to keep in mind about this new school funding formula, which is just a draft, it's just a proposal right now. It would have to be adopted by the legislature uh, in order to become law. But the main thing it does is it swaps out kind of this complicated attendance-based method of funding for an enrollment-based method of funding. And it might sound a little bit like splitting hairs and semantics, but it's, it's actually in, in, important, and it's an important distinction. Uh, because with an attendance-based formula, you could have four or five, six percent of kids absent, whereas if it's enrollment, you get the hundred percent level. Um, that's the first thing it does. The second thing it would do was provide additional weights, which you can think of like a funding boost, additional mm -hmm. weights or boosts for both small 
school districts, small elementary schools and small high schools under small a certain... Small schools that don't have the economies of scale becoming right. a, a larger school. It would provide additional funding weights or funding boosts for at-risk and special ed mm-hmm. students, and it would provide predictable, stable funding levels for the very smallest schools out there. Uh, one proposal that I saw on Wednesday was to treat all tiny, tiny schools as if they had an enrollment of 30 students, regardless of whether that enrollment actually hits 30. Because uh, what the, the consultant said and what legislators have said is it's so expensive per student at those small, small schools, uh, your three creeks, the, the schools yeah. that maybe have eight kids, uh, that it's, it, it's difficult to predict uh, what funding is needed and it's so expensive per student. So it would be certain protections for the very smallest student. But there are kind of, you can kind of see battle lines being drawn about what would be folded in to the new funding mm-hmm. formula versus what would be omitted. And so we're talking about budget line items. Those are earmarks. A lot of the line items we were talking about in the first segment. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and these are things that people fought for, uh, that people expended political will for, whether it was professional development training for teachers. Uh, but two of the line items that we're talking about, which could be omitted from the funding formula, one could be technology spending. I think that was $10.5 million in new spending mm-hmm. in last year's budget to help pay for wireless infrastructure and classroom technology. Uh, that's the kind of the backbone of this computer science push uh, that we're seeing. And, and also literacy funding mm-hmm. uh, is another one that may not be folded into the funding formula. And so what does that mean? Well, the idea is that the new funding formula would give school districts local control to get a check from the state and apply the money where they best see fit. But some legislators and some education advocates are saying, well, with the line items, it specifically called out a pot of money and said, we really want it going here. We think literacy is really important. So we want to make sure this money makes it in to help our literacy initiative. Or we really want to make sure this money helps us with that technology initiative. And so it's a specific carve out in the budget. And it isn't really clear if things are omitted from the funding formula, if the line items would be retained separately outside the new formula and funded, or if they would just go away. It's not really clear um, what would happen. But the thing is, if we we continue with our line item system of doing business, then we really haven't changed the funding formula, and and that's important too. Right. That's kind of the tension here. I mean, how much do you continue to carve out in line items as opposed to how much do you fold into a new formula to uh, allow districts and charters a little bit more spending authority. But it, it's really going to come down to a fight over the uh, over the line items because, you know, whether you like it or not, what these line items have done over the years is it has allowed governors, uh, state superintendents, and legislators the chance to say, this is a project we think is really important. Yeah. We want to make sure that there's uh, $13 million to, to literacy. We want to make sure that there's uh, a separate line item to uh, hire uh, high school uh, advisors uh, or uh, allow high school students to take, uh, take AP classes or dual credit classes or what have you. I mean, on down the list. All of these line items uh, ha- have allowed you know, political leaders to uh, kind of exert political will and say that this is something that we, we, we prioritize. Now it's a question of whether the legislature wants to walk back from that kind of an approach and 
you know, allow districts and, and charters a little bit more spending authority. It's going to be a protracted battle during the 2019 session. I don't think there's any question about that. Yeah, and I got a sense Wednesday of we could be looking at one of the one of the biggest, most complicated bills that we've seen in a few years uh, at the state legislature. Legislative services uh, officials drew up kind of a draft, and just to transition from an attendance-based model to an enrollment-based model, they're looking at maybe a 65-page bill, and that's only one component of the school funding formula. Um, and the more complicated a bill like this gets, and the more line items you address, the more uh, the more chance you have to have legislators peel off and vote against it just because a project that they're very passionate about is going by the wayside. So this is going to be a, a very complicated and probably uh, contentious uh, political battle next session. Yeah, so real quickly, what happens next? Uh, the committee is going to have a follow-up meeting later this month towards the end of September. Uh, they may unveil uh, more of the funding formula at that point, and then uh, another meeting is planned for late October. It's important to note the Legislative Interim Committee has not released the funding formula to the public, the formula as it, as it is. Uh, there was a presentation at the State House on Wednesday. I got to see a spreadsheet, and they kind of played around with it and manipulated some numbers, and I could see how it would work. But they have not released the funding formula to the public, and I think that that's important. Yeah, um, and we'll, we'll obviously keep an eye on it. And as soon as we get more public data that we can present, we'll, we'll do it. But yeah. At this point, uh, kind of keep in mind, it is a proposal. Uh, the main thing to keep in mind is it goes from attendance to enrollment, but it's just a proposal. It's just a draft. Uh, this interim committee would need to approve something uh, before their charter runs out in November, and then they would need to amend existing sections of state law and pass likely a massive, massive new bill to write the new funding formula uh, into law. We are looking at right now holding school districts harmless for a five-year period. So what does that mean? The Speaker of the House, Scott Bedke, asked, what does holding you harmless mean? It means that the idea is that school districts would not receive less money than they did this current right. year for five years until the new funding formula is kicked in. That's also just a proposal at this point, but that's sort of my best understanding of where we're at today. Uh, and, and, and what happens next, but a lot still to happen. Right, and another meeting of this committee coming up in late September, so we'll, uh, we'll be there for that, and uh, we'll keep you posted. All right, moving right along, I want to talk, Kevin, you've been tracking the state's new uh, reading test that we give, I believe, at the kindergarten through third grade level, mm -hmm. the new Idaho Reading Indicator 2.0. This is the good new test, right, that everybody's looking forward to. Uh, but there right. was kind of... You did. You offered sort of a preview of the new test and, and what to expect, but what is the new test and what's on the horizon? Right, so kindergartners through third graders are taking the new version of the Idaho Reading Indicator as we speak. This is being administered uh, over the next few weeks, and we should see the first round of results from the new test in October. And what the State Department of Education is telling us is uh, they're expecting the scores to be lower with the new test as opposed to the old test. And, the old and, test, keep in mind, just two weeks ago, that was a bad test. Well, right, <laughs> uh, right. I mean, and and I think, you know, they would still say that it's it's a bad test, or at least it's a test that only provides limited data. So what the state is hoping to see with the new test and what teachers are hoping to see with the new test is more data, more checkpoints of how 
how kids are doing in terms of their reading skills or their pre-reading skills. But when you start to grade students on more different uh, metrics, uh, there's uh, more of a chance for them to uh, fall below grade level in the scoring. So that's why the state is expecting the scores to drop. And, and that's not shocking. We saw that a little bit when we transitioned to the new uh, Smarter Balance test. Exactly. Uh, that was a new test maybe four years ago or so. Uh, we saw that at that time. So it's not unprecedented, not shocking. It, no, it, it's not unprecedented, and it's not shocking. And I think it's important to keep in mind because, um, you know, the State Department of Education is saying, look, there's really no good way to compare the old Idaho right. reading indicator and scores that's fair. to the new Idaho reading indicator scores. It's fair. I get it. Uh, I think it was kind of important to sort of set the stage uh, of what to expect with these scores and how to, to read them or what kind of context we can put the new scores into ahead of time. Because, you know, let's face it, uh, you know, this has been a big initiative at the state level. It's one of those line items we were just talking about before. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on trying to get K through three students reading at grade level. Uh, folks are going to look at these new scores, and if the scores come in lower, like uh, like we're expecting, uh, there are going to be people saying, "Hey, wait a minute, what what are we doing? Why are we spending 13 million dollars a year to help kids learn how to read, and the scores are dropping?" Well, hold on a second. I think it's important to to put yeah. these scores into perspective. So we just kind of wanted to lay out the groundwork of what to expect uh, when the scores do drop, and we do expect those scores to drop in October. Uh, another interesting sidelight into this, one of the things that we've heard about this uh, test is, uh, since it's an online test, uh, a computer-driven test, there have been concerns that kindergartners who maybe aren't as computer literate, who don't spend as much time in front of a screen, are having a difficult time taking this test because it's a test as much of uh, computer skills as it is of reading skills. Uh, we talked to the State Department of Education about that, and uh, what we heard is that they've really tried to emphasize in the training process that schools should give uh, students a little bit more practice time so they're accustomed to how to take the test. But that's really kind of up to what the schools want to do and how much time they can carve out for practice. So. We will wait and see what these numbers look like in October. Um, I, I'm going to be cautious in reporting about it and not draw conclusions based on this one snapshot score until we see the spring scores on this new test or next fall. Or numbers. even really it's, two, three really years hard. from yeah. now where we have multiple years of data. Uh, and, and so it is important. It's a new test. Uh, we're testing kids in a different way on different things. But it's not like if they do badly, that doesn't mean... They're not going to go on to first grade or, or, or second grade. It's more of like to identify reading deficiencies and problems so that we can intervene and, and provide assistance to those struggling young it, readers. It's, it's not about did they do well or poorly or, or, or we're going to hold them back. They're not ready to move on to first or second grade. It's about identifying maybe areas where teachers can intervene and build up those skill sets. And that's kind of a rudimentary explanation. It, it, it's always been designed to be a screener to help teachers figure out which of their students are at risk of falling behind yeah. in reading. It's not a definitive, right. uh, comprehensive test. And that's the reason for this new test. Uh, to try to give teachers more data points, more of a sense of where a student's strengths and weaknesses lie, so that they can help the students along, especially the students who are at risk of falling behind, you know, help and kind of target the instruction towards uh, their strengths and weaknesses. Is it listening skills? Is it, uh, you know, is it, you know, 
Is it fluency? Is it uh, rate of speed? Uh, you know, what, what, where are the strengths and weaknesses so that uh, students can get the help that they need? I've had a lot of people who, who know this stuff a lot better than I do say that you know, the, the added data is really important and it's something that uh, has been long overdue. I get that. Uh, but along the way, you've got this transition from one test to the next. And it's going to be delicate because if the numbers drop, some people are going to look at that and, and jump to conclusions that uh, may be premature. Yeah. Head on over to IdahoEdNews.org if you want to get caught up all on the new reading test uh, that our young students are taking right now in Idaho's classroom. Moving on, Kevin, you've really been following uh, higher ed and the higher ed landscape, the transition uh, from high school to college. You had a report this week about the FAFSA, the Free Application for Federal Student Aid. Uh, you've been tracking this for a while, but what did you find out? Well, what I found and what I wanted to take a closer look at is uh, Idaho students uh, are not filling out the FAFSA uh, nearly at the, at the rate that we're seeing at the national level. And what, what I found talking to the State Board of Education and looking at their spreadsheets, which are publicly available, you can link to them off of, uh, off of my story, uh, fewer than half of uh, graduating seniors in the state fill out the FAFSA or their parents fill out the FAFSA. Um, you know, pause for a second for parents who may be listening who have had to fill out the FAFSA. I feel your pain right. as a parent. It is a, it, it's a very cumbersome, nightmarish kind of a federal forum. So I, I get that. <laughs> and I think that that's one of the impediments to students and parents filling out the form. It's tough. It's time consuming. It's a mess. But it's also really important because uh, that's the precursor that qualifies a student for federal financial aid. Right. And here we're talking about uh, federally subsidized loans or work study uh, jobs or, uh, or Pell Grants. You can't get any of that unless you fill out a FAFSA. And more to the point, you cannot also get uh, state uh, opportunity scholarships unless you've filled out your federal financial aid form. And, and we've and talked about how important the affordability yeah. portion is, affordability uh, is for such, college. such a big part of the equation in terms of, of, of college enrollment and college completion. Uh, the state has been plowing more money into that opportunity scholarship program. But if fewer than half of high school students are filling out a FAFSA, uh, they can't even apply for an opportunity scholarship, even if they're uh, they're eligible for the money and they have the grades that would uh, qualify them for the money. So the FAFSA is a big deal, and w what I wanted to explore is uh, why are students not filling this out? And there are a variety of reasons that I get into in the story. And what uh, what can schools do to get students to fill it out? You have a lot of schools do FAFSA nights where you know they. they you know, serve pizza or what have you. We're all in and, this together. <laughs> it, yeah, it is probably a little bit of group therapy, but it is uh, parents and students being able to come in at night and maybe they can meet with a, a financial aid advisor who, who actually knows how to navigate the FAFSA and can help them fill it out. Um, when I talked to one of the administrators in Nampa, he said, you know, FAFSA nights are great, but a lot of my students, if they don't do this during the school day, uh, they're going to go home and maybe their folks uh, work nights or they can't get back to school or in the evening, we lose them. They, they can't come back for a FAFSA night. So we've really got to figure out more creative ways to help students uh, get in front of advisors and get the help that they need during the school day. So it's a big, it's a big deal and it's a, a big challenge. Um, it, it looks like some things are trending positively in terms of, 
Idaho students uh, filling out the FAFSA. One federal report says that uh, the numbers seem to be going in the positive direction. State board numbers uh, not necessarily uh, track with that. But the state board is hoping, uh, the staffers I spoke to are hoping that they're going to see some improvements as, uh, as the state does more to get students aware of their options after high school, whether that's college or professional uh, certificates, which by the way, students can use uh, federal financial aid to get a professional certificate. You know, it's not just scholarships to go to a four-year college or a two-year college. That's important to note. Yeah, for sure. Good stuff. Head on over to IdahoEdNews.org to get caught up on all the latest. One more topic to squeeze in, uh, kind of a landslide election in the Boise School District trustees race earlier this year. Uh, earlier this week, week, it feels like, it a, feels year, like right? a year ago. I apologize. It was Tuesday. Uh, but uh, three new members of the Boise City Council, but we may not be done yet. Explain what's going on. Well, so we had three school board races up for grabs on Tuesday. Uh, two incumbents, Maria Greeley and Troy Roan, were elected easily. Alicia Esty, uh, an administrator at Boise State University, was also elected easily. She actually uh, got more votes than Greeley or Roan, and she will effectively take the seat on the school board that's being vacated by A.J. Belukov, who is stepping down after 21 years on the school board. But wait, there's more. As we learned on Thursday afternoon, um, there's going to be another vacancy on the uh, Boise School Board that the uh, the trustees are going to have to take up on uh, Monday. They have to uh, deal with uh, a resignation that is coming from Doug Park, who had been on the school board for five years. So that becomes an appointment process. There's not going to be another election, but uh, the board will figure out an appointee who will serve out the remaining two years of uh, Park's term. So two new school board members in Boise in the second largest district in the state. So uh, you know, we'll see how the, the new faces uh, work with, uh, with some of the, uh, the more established folks on that, uh, on that board. All right. Thanks for that update. Uh, man, that was a busy podcast and yes. a busy week, but I think we got it all in. Uh, so much to... To talk about, if you missed anything, head over to IdahoEdNews.org and get caught up on all our top stories. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, at IdahoEdNews. We break all of our top stories there and live tweet some of the big meetings. So that's a good resource if you're on Twitter, if you're on social media. But as always, we have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, kind of breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of school politics and school policy. So thank you so much for coming along for the ride and checking out the podcast and visiting our homepage. We always appreciate it. We have a lot of fun. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.